being so connected to the fan community for such a long time, it's really interesting to think about what being a fan of something is. And I think for most people, people want to find those things to make connections with other people. They want to find a way to build that community. And these cultural arts things are just, you know, really easy ways to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think at the bottom line is people really want connection. They want to connect with other people. They want to find that community. Hello and welcome to another episode. Oh, I'm not even doing a foreign language. Should I skip that? Maybe I'll skip that for this episode. So welcome to the Daddy Unscripted podcast. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the podcast creator and your host, but I'm really excited to have this episode for you all to hear with myself and Sam Jennings. I am very appreciative of Sam coming and uh, making the time to sit and talk with me for a while tonight. Sam worked for Prince for nine years, starting late 1998. Sam Jennings is a dad, and we did his dad episode before this one, which you should go back and listen to if you did not. But in this episode, we talk about his time working with Prince, a little bit of his time working with Pearl Jam as well, and talked a lot about the creative process and what it was like working for Prince and what they did, etc., etc. In our first episode, we talked a lot about that relationship as well and talked about them working together and doing a lot of their work while Sam was remote in Chicago, while Prince was in Minneapolis, and how they communicated over AOL Messenger. And it was really funny because I just kind of pictured that being Prince. Hey, are you up? Yeah, I'm just sitting in bed. Cool, man. Well, let's work on this project. And I'm sure it was nothing like that, but it just kind of tickled me to think about them communicating over AIM back in those days. So let's dig into this episode. Let's listen to Sam and I talk about his work with Prince and his work with Pearl Jam and how that uh, all came to be. So here we go. But it was really interesting hearing his side of everything and how, you know, it was kind of the same thing that you were saying earlier in our other episode about how a lot of people kind of really talked about what a nice, genuine, like caring guy that Prince was that, you know, he's this upper echelon celebrity. Mm-hmm. And I think you, I think when you're that, like people tend to generalize and expect and assume things of those people and so Mm -hmm. it's more remarkable when somebody isn't Mm -hmm. a jerk than when they when they are you know it's kind of the normal way of thinking i guess so Mm -hmm. i am excited that you have that kind of story to tell as well Mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of one of the things that a lot of prince fans love to hear and love to know that you aren't a fan of a prick you know right that you're not like not only supporting and spending all this money and but that you really are like it's a connection and and mm-hmm. I think with with him and his music and for a lot of the fans especially because of the age that he started or the time frame that he started and the kind of connections that people were making to 
artists and musicians and celebrities at that time in a much different way than people are that were our age when Prince was hitting it big, the way that they are, quote unquote, connecting with musicians now Mm -hmm. is just proof of how strong that connection was Mm -hmm. and how tangible and real it was to all of us Mm -hmm. and why that, you know, a lot of people here at my work, I have a lot of Mm 20-year-olds and I think they kind of kind of laugh and don't really get the connection, you know, and the actual feel of sorrow Mm -hmm. when something or somebody like this passes that Mm -hmm. you really had that connection with a guy I never met, right? whatever, which is very different from your story and your connection, but mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm, I'm just clearing my throat out of natural need to clear my throat. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a big piece of our history, mm-hmm. I think, and why it is kind of cool to talk to people that also share that and have that understanding as opposed to uh, you know, talking about somebody else that you have a connection with or a liking for, you know, I can talk about my favorite actor or mm-hmm. whatever, and that's a completely different situation. Right. There isn't that kind of connection as you right. have with somebody like Prince. So, right. wow, that was way before I've even kind of introduced you into this episode. <laughs> we are here again with Sam Jennings. <laughs> who I I love the way that you are described as the Prince guy. Mm. (laughs) Is that trademarked yet? No, not yet. No. There's probably a a few other people who might. (laughs) Yeah. Who might, who might have to, you would have one of those anchor man brawls over that name. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like, who's your local (laughs) Prince guy. So for some people, I'm I'm the local Prince guy for some people. (laughs) Yeah. But Sam will tell us, in more detail, but he did a lot of work for and with Prince for nine years. Nine years. Back in... in end of 98 to the end of 2007. Okay. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for coming down and bringing your awesome shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Paisley Park is in our heart from yeah. the PRN alumni. Yeah, I love it. In our previous episode, we did talk a little bit about some of the stuff, which um, I we will probably cover to some extent as well your discussions with him and how that kind of all started, but you can go back and listen to that. I don't want to double cover everything, but tell me about when that first kind of connection happened and somebody kind of passed you along to him. Yeah. So what I found out later is that a lot of people at that time were getting work with Prince by just kind of knowing somebody who was already there. So Prince would say, I need someone to do such and such. Do you know somebody? Mm-hmm. And someone would go, yeah, I know somebody. And they'd, they'd pass you along. Because this was at a time, you know, end of, end of the 90s, where Prince was in a very kind of do-it-yourself mode. Like, he had left Warner Brothers. He was done with the rec- recording system. He didn't have the 10 assistants and all that other stuff that he had in those earlier days. So it was very much like a bare-bones skeleton crew at Paisley Park. And, um, yeah, he was very much in a do-it-yourself mode. So... There was a web project that was he was developing called LoveForOneAnother.com, which was centered around his charity at the time. And he thought it would be a good idea to kind of sort of crowdsource the development of that among his fans. Mm-hmm. And so you know, after a few attempts, uh, somebody connected him with me, a mutual friend who had 
was already kind of in there working with him on this project. And so I started working on loveforanother.com with the kind of collective of other Prince fans. Cause I was, I was a big Prince fan before working for him and I'd been doing web stuff for a while and I'd kind of organized events in Chicago among Prince fans. And I was getting to know the online community at that time mm-hmm. as it was coming together. So before we move forward, as we do on this show a lot, let's move back. How as a fellow white boy <laughs> and you in that time, I mean, you were in Chicago, mm-hmm. so it was a little bit, I don't know, maybe I'm being a geographist <laughs> or whatever you would call that by me saying that you would have more people around you who were potentially listening to Prince than mm-hmm. me being in Orange County uh, <laughs> living with a pastor for a dad. Oh, yeah. But uh, how did... Prince kind of, how did you get your start with him? Yeah. Um, you know, I, the first time I ever heard Prince was actually on MTV. Like a lot of people will see mm-hmm. the little red Corvette video, mm-hmm. but I think you are right that in Chicago, you know, we did have a very strong black radio, um, community. So listening to stations like WBMX and WGCI and V103, these were stations that were playing that was playing Prince and playing some of the you know, playing him some of the deeper cuts and, and more music than you'd hear on mainstream radio. So I think I was exposed to more of that, but you know, in 1984, I mean, he was, he was everywhere. So he was pretty unavoidable. Um, Prince was the biggest thing ever, but also, you know, I did, I did go to an all black high school as well. Mm. So he, so he was coming out at a time when I was in school surrounded by an largely African American community, who was listening to early hip hop and a lot of that's kind of R and B music that you wouldn't necessarily find um, on mainstream radio um, stuff, you know, and watching things like BT video soul and mm-hmm. being exposed to that. So that culture was around me and I was familiar with it. So um, I'd say that was definitely part of it as well. Prince was a mainstream artist by the time I got to him, but you know, I kind of laid the groundwork by being around that community. Mm-hmm. And so what was your initial real igniter or connector? Was it Little Red Corvette or was it Purple Rain album or? You know, I was really, I really enjoyed the 1999 album. I listened to it a lot. But Mm -hmm. then I remember being in my parents' car and when Doves Cry comes on for the first time Mm -hmm. and I'm like, this is something else. This is something very different. And we get back home and it was one of those situations where I'm like, I'm just going to stay in the car. Can you leave the radio on? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm 13 at the time. And, um, you know, I could just tell this was, this was something else. This was something otherworldly. Like he had, he had struck something major mm-hmm. and I went, I got on my bike and I rode to Kmart and I bought the 45 single <laughs> that day That's awesome. with 17 days on the B side. And I, <laughs> yeah. I, I still have the single. Oh, really? That first one that, that you got? That 45. That's yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, it, 1999 got a ton of listens. Um, and I think it I think it was Little Roy Corvette that was kind of my eye-opener. But then once, once Purple Rain came out, it was like on, like <laughs> yeah. big time. Yeah. And I told the story previously, but I remember my dad pulling out the album I, I I don't even really know whose record player I was using in my family, but I was using somebody's record player to listen to it. And he pulled out the lyric sheet mm-hmm. because he wanted to see what I was getting so immersed in. He mm-hmm. could tell um, 
And this was shortly before my walls became basically completely wallpapered with <laughs> prints. I mean, you could get a number of magazines at that point and it was, you know, stills from the movie and mm-hmm. whatever. And I don't know how, he, I think the innuendos were a little bit past my dad, fortunately. And he absolutely did not get to Darling Nikki because if oh, he good. would have, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no way. There's no innuendos there. <laughs> no. And, and let's, go, let's skip the subtlety. You just go right to it. Yeah. <laughs> and I would have been like punished. That would have been taken away. And oh, wow. had I ever like listened to Prince again <laughs> and gotten caught for it, it would have been not great. Well, I did, I did not have those issues in my house. My parents actually kind of encouraged sort of listening to what they would call sort of rebellious music. I think going back to their leftist politics past. Mm. But, you know, I will say too, watching the movie Purple Rain, um, you know, I got a sense that Prince was really creating his own world. Like you, you watch this movie and it was like, it's not just some guy playing a guitar. It's like he's creating a whole universe around himself. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the audience that's listening to his music in that movie, it's a white, it's a black, yeah. it's it's a diverse audience. Yeah. And so you could find yourself in that audience. You know, it wasn't just playing to white folks or black people or anything like that. I don't, and that's kind of something I think a lot of people forget about Prince. Is of course he's an African American, mm-hmm. but you know his appeal and his influences were so much broader than just the African American community. I mean, he he grew up in a town of ten percent black people. I mean, right. he, he was listening to everything. Yeah, and if he wanted to play a club like First Avenue, he had to play music that everyone wanted to listen mm-hmm. to. And and you know, so I I remember seeing that as a kid and and connecting with that that this was some other world where everyone's like kind of crazy and wearing makeup and <laughs> yeah yeah, like, it's all just kind of like interesting and cool. Yeah, and half of the revolution basically is white. Absolutely. Yeah. And very made up. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, I, I don't think in our school, in my little Christian high school at a Baptist church, there was, I think my senior year, there was one black boy who was a sophomore and started. And I don't think he graduated. Mm-hmm. And when I was a freshman, there was, three sisters that actually I used to ride the bus with them mm-hmm. um, for a little bit from school, the public bus. And her sisters thought I was the most hilarious kid because I used to listen to run DMC mm-hmm. and Prince and whistle, which probably 1% of the people hearing this know who that <laughs> is. And all of these bands that, Probably no other kid at our school, maybe mm-hmm. one, was listening to. And they used to think I was just a crack up because <laughs> I was so into Prince. And like, it wasn't very common back then as a junior hire listening to Prince and like in this school where it was all white people basically mm-hmm. or white kids. And I remember playing it for some of my friends. Jason Rodarmel, who I've spoken about quite a bit on this podcast, and it just blowing their minds, like hearing Prince and hearing not only his attitude and his lyrics and everything, but his music was, you know, we were, everybody else was listening to, uh, who? The Smiths. Um, you know, all that typical eighties music that Mm -hmm. you think about. Oingo Boingo was very big Uh in our area back then. But it was, you know, very different and 
so it's it's cool hearing the way that it was for you and the difference, but the similarity as well. Mm-hmm. So okay, so let's go back again, go forward. Mm-hmm. Then I just wanted to kind of hear how you kind of fell into him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you are then um, starting to work on his website for love for another love yeah. for another. So um, yeah, we were working on that. And uh, I was, like I said, it was centered around his charity, but he, he kind of wound up using it as an official website and he'd put out messages through there and uh, communicate with the fans. And then, you know, this is way before social media. Mm-hmm. So what would be considered tweets now, he was essentially posting on this website mm-hmm. and I would have to go in and, and type it in. Like there wasn't even any CMS or any kind of WordPress kind of thing mm-hmm. like that either. It was me hand typing it. Um, so eventually like since I'd been a web professional, you know, previous to doing that, uh, and I was doing, that was actually my day job at that time as well. You know, he kind of pulled me aside and said, well, okay, after this is done, why don't we do another project, just you and me? And that led to working on mpgonlineltd.com. And we did that for about a year. And during that time, that's when him and I really put some thought into how can we turn this into a business? How Mm -hmm. can we use the internet to sell his music directly? Because that was a big thing for him, obviously. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to distribute my music to a record label, which I feel isn't going to treat me fairly. I want to go directly to the consumer as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And he'd gotten the idea of, about the internet being that you know way before I came along. He was he did an interactive CD-ROM. Mm-hmm. He put out a movie called The Beautiful Experience among fans um, in 1994, where mm-hmm. the character in the movie downloads music to her computer. So you know, it was an idea that he'd had for a while. It's just kind of waiting for the technology to kind of catch up with him and people having access to the internet in the way that they were starting to have in the late nineties. So, you know, we really were talking about, okay, what can we do? Like how, and you know, we have to remember too, that Napster was really huge at the time. So file file sharing was a concern. Yeah. Uh, How could we kind of get around that? So we're not just giving our music, his music out to everyone just to trade. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it took us about a year, but uh, we came up with a subscription based model that we thought would work really well distributing mp3s from him every month and so that led to the mpg music club in Mm -hmm. 2001 and how were you guys distributing the information of the site to the fans right off the bat when the site first started well yeah yeah i mean prince it was he was almost like an underground artist at the time yeah he he hadn't really had a mainstream hit in quite a while so you know, people it weren't necessarily, he wasn't necessarily on their radar. So, you know, I had really strong ties to the fan community. He had a really strong online community of fans and mm-hmm. still does. And, um, you know, it was really just a lot of word of mouth. It was a lot of um, doing press. And also when he would tour, you know, we, we were doing those things like the pre-sales. And we would give the best tickets in the house to our fan club members. And we would kind of make a point of telling the rest of the audience that, like, you know, see these people in the front, they got their tickets to mm-hmm. us. So you should come to us next time you want to get a good ticket because we're going to be the guys hook you up with that. I remember now on multiple concerts, now that I'm thinking about it, hearing him kind of talking at least at at some point or to some small extent, like pimping out the website and saying something and getting the word out then. Yeah, I think, you know, he really wanted to create a situation where... um, you know, you could feel like you were supporting what he was doing directly. You know, you you were supporting Prince by being a part of this music club. It wasn't just going to some agency or some, you know, some record label mm-hmm. fronting it or um, Live Nation or any of these other kind of companies. It, you, like you gave, you were giving your money directly to him, mm-hmm. 
And, you know, a lot of the hardcore fans really got into that idea, I think. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like he rewarded them by treating them like they were kind of part of an inner circle. Yeah. Which obviously still stands very true and strong. Like even years after the site was kind of doing that, like you can s- still see all those connections. If, if you poke around online, like you can still see all those people very connected and mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah, all the very inner inner circle or whatever. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I being so connected to the fan community for such a long time, it's really interesting to think about what being a fan of something is. And I think for most people, you know, you can you can take anything. You can take a band. You can take a sports team. You can take um, a movie, television show you know, people want to find those things to make connections with other people. They want to find a way to build that community. And these cultural arts things are just, you know, really easy ways to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think at the bottom line is people really want connection. They want to connect with other people. They want to find that community. Like maybe a hundred, 200 years ago, they found it through religion or or things like that, or, Mm -hmm. or regional geographic things. And now, as people go away from those things, they find it they like, we're, hey, we're all Star Wars fans or, hey, we're all Red Sox fans. You know? Right, right. And they find that community and that's what brings people together and people kind of crave that connection. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think back to the time of pre-social media, pre-internet. Like, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm also a fairly uh, thriving hippie <laughs> and I... You know, I don't know how much you know about that music community or whatever, but with, say, the Grateful Dead uh, years and years ago, sort of pre-internet back in 90, 91, I mean, pre like really internet. I mean, I know the internet existed at that point, but we would try to get shows and trying to get all the shows that they were currently playing and you would do what was called a BNP. So you would send, you would connect with somebody basically through a magazine or mm-hmm. um, through kind of like a classified ad. And you would say what shows you were looking for or whatever. And, you know, you only wanted it in soundboard. You didn't want some guys recording that he put the microphone in his hat and he was <laughs> sixth row behind the soundboard or whatever. Right. And somebody would connect with you and you would send them in a manila envelope. You would send them back in this day, you would send them blank cassettes. Uh And there were some people who I will not record on anything but a Maxell XL290. Don't don't send me, uh, what is it? Memorex. (laughs) Uh, Don't send me whatever cassette cassette type because they will, (laughs) you know, you have all these people, you're imagining this, that all these guys are, have these double uh, cassette decks and they're running all these copies and the lower quality tape they're afraid is going to snap and ruin their entire, not livelihood, but (laughs) their entire like hobby of this. Right. And so you would send this manila envelope with blank tapes uh, with postage inside. They would record mm-hmm. their master tape onto it and put it back, put the postage back on it and send it back to you. And you would have all these different tapes of things. And then, you know, that eventually became digital trading and mm-hmm. whatever now. And I actually was talking with Matt Thorne and, and saying, like, now you have 
websites that are in the in the jam band community that a a band fish or whoever mm-hmm. is doing a show and they within an hour are uploading the mp3s of it mm-hmm. and the flack yeah. and whatever different file type you know mm-hmm. lossless files or whatever and you can go on and pay 7 bucks mm-hmm. um for the entire show mm-hmm. And there are people, I mean, lots and lots and lots of people who are rushing out to get that. And I think I'm ready to take that over for Prince. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and no, I'm just kidding. But well, um, I mean, I think there is something to that. That mm-hmm. and, and I won't go over the same thing, but we talked a lot about the vault and what is in there and mm-hmm. how are they going to, you know, what is truly commercial, marketable material. Right. And, you know, then you have your different subsets of, well, the real hardcore fans are going to like this and Mm -hmm. want to gobble it up. And then this will actually be, you know, your Prince Forever album that has one new song on it that more people will consume or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting challenge because I certainly had to walk that line when I was doing what I was doing because... The MPG Music Club obviously appealed to the more hardcore, you know, fan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the the person who loves Kiss and when Doves Cry and just wants to see him play Purple Rain in like in a concert every four years, they're not going to be interested in the MPG Music Club, right? Um, it's not their thing, and that's, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. But, but yeah, how how do you do? How do you put out material that can appeal to those hardcore fans and still have a viable business that can kind of go beyond that a little bit? Mm-hmm. and grow that community um yeah i know i know nowadays bands like pearl jam and metallica you know they do official bootlegs as just part of their tours it's just right. a normal thing when i worked for pearl jam that was one of one of my jobs was to design the cd package for that particular tour mm-hmm. for the bootlegs and um you know it's just become a normal thing and there's a market for that it's not a big market right you're not going to sell millions of those but there's some market and there's some people that want it. Yeah. Um, and obviously if Prince would have done that, there would have been a market for that too. Right. I, I always got the impression though, you know, in talking to him, he felt that if he put those out, he didn't think people were still going to come to the show. He thought that they were just going to, they could just listen to it at home. They were mm-hmm. going to bother to come out or it was going to dilute the experience somehow. Mm-hmm. I think also in his mind, he's just the perfectionist that he is. So, if he screwed up a bar in, um, you know, musicology, he doesn't want that out there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, that kind of thing too. So, you know, he never really, he never warmed up to that idea of let's, let's make official bootlegs, even though obviously like people crave that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it seemed like he walked a, a lot of those lines and went onto both sides of them many times. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like he, um, you would really see that in the tours, especially because he would do he would kind of do this sort of sing song where he'd do one tour that kind of appealed to the hardcore fan, and mm-hmm. then the next tour might be a little more mainstream, and it would kind of you know, kind of go back and forth. So, for instance, he did the Musicology tour in two thousand four, which was a really huge tour. AG funded it; it was ninety cities. It was kind of his big push back into the mainstream, and so just a couple of years before that, he was doing smaller theaters. And he was like, I'm not going to do Purple Rain. I'm not going to do my hit. He's, mm-hmm. he's a little more jazz-based. And, you know, people were kind of coming to the show like, I really wanted to hear Purple Rain. Yeah. 
and so you know and like i said a few years later he's playing musicology where he's playing stadiums again mm-hmm. and he's interested in getting that mainstream audience again so that's when he's rolling out purple rain that's when he's rolling out the hits and it was a, it was a huge su- successful tour is one of the biggest uh, sellers of the year yeah so let's go back into your world there with him because at the beginning when you're basically working remote from Chicago, mm-hmm. um, how long was it before you were actually starting to go back and forth to Minneapolis? You know, it took a little while. Like him, the relationship between him and I, it I'd say it was a definitely sort of a steady rise. Like it didn't just wasn't like day one, like, Hey, here's Prince, like do this. It was kind of like, okay, starting on one project. Then he kind of feel me out and trust me a little more Then we mm-hmm. started other projects. I'd come around Paisley a lot. I'd participate in events. I'd help out with um, things that were going on, like retail sales or concerts that were going on. It was different roles to play in those things. Um, and then, you know, I'd see him around, but we didn't really have a lot of face-to-face contact. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it was really kind of when we were starting to talk about the music club that he really, him and I started talking directly a lot more when we started really saying like, okay, well, let's make a business out of this. Mm-hmm. So this would be like 2000. And then, you know, in addition to that, uh, my duties kind of expanded because um, the previous creative director to me was Steve Park. And he he just had a baby. He didn't want to be around as much. He lived in Baltimore. So some of those creative duties started coming to me. So when I started working on actual CDs and doing stuff connected to his music directly like that, then I started coming around more too, where he wanted me to actually be in Paisley Park with him to work on a CD project mm-hmm. or a, a tour book or work on photos from a ticket concert. I started doing the visual design stuff for him. That's when we really started having more of a direct relationship and it, when it wasn't just the internet stuff. And how, I don't, I don't want to like come down on Prince, <laughs> but how, how frustrating or difficult was it because of his his desire to control what he should be controlling. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying he should be saying to everybody, do whatever you want. Right. I'm Prince. But how difficult was it at times to kind of deal with the back and forth and the let's do this today and going full force with it and then the next day, like him potentially throwing it out and <laughs> all of that. Like, was it something where... Do you think if you were somebody else, if you weren't so invested in it that you would have kind of thrown in the towel at some point? Or was it not that frustrating for you? Yeah, I never really had a problem with it. I think that is why we work so well together, because I was really just able to roll with whatever he threw at me. And um, I know some some designers can get really possessive of Mm -hmm. what they're doing or like they have very strong opinions and like, no, that's wrong or I'm not going to put my name on that kind of thing. Yeah. Where I was like, well, at the end of the day, Prince's name is on this. This is his thing. Mm -hmm. And he had very strong ideas and, and you know, we would, he would ask for opinions and ask me to add stuff. But, you know, if he had a vision of what he wanted, then by all means, like if I can articulate it for him, if I can bring that to life and he's happy with it, then I'm, good (laughs) yeah yeah and it was it was just a fun creative environment to be around um so i just really enjoyed that process if we were working on a cd and he just wanted to try something out i was fine with that you know just putting it together coming up with interesting ideas and if it never saw the light of day that's okay Mm -hmm. um i get paid the same either way right yeah (laughs) yeah 
um, you know, I, I just was kind of enjoying the experience. So I was never one of those people who kind of would argue with them or kind of get defensive about stuff because mm-hmm. like I said, at the end of the day, Prince's name is all over this, not mine. Yeah. It's his product. Yeah. How difficult or was it even difficult for you to, from the get go, since you were a Prince fan to kind of make that separation of look, ma, I'm working for Prince to the, okay, I need to work for Prince. (laughs) Was that something that you had to kind of check yourself on at any point or more than once, or was it just kind of, you were able to kind of flip that switch right off the bat? Well, I will say that um, I always appreciated Prince from an artistic perspective. So when I, when I was into Prince, I was into him because here was somebody who was working at an artistic level that was so high and so impressive to me that it was always a situation where I felt like I wanted to contribute to that in some way. I wanted to like participate. It wasn't kind of a reverential, like, Oh my God, you're so great. Kind mm-hmm. of like, or like one of the, not to put down fans or what the, what they do, but you know, one of those fans that's like, Oh, I have a piece of his hair and I'm going to keep it in a box next yeah. to my bed. You know, I wasn't one of those kind of fans. Yeah. I was really more about like, wow, you know, the things he's doing are so impressive. And I myself, as a creative person, I'm so blown away by someone able to do it on that level mm-hmm. that just to be able to contribute and participate and and be a part of it was such a thrill for me that it wasn't really kind of a idol worship situation. It was it was like no, I'm I'm here to work and that's what I want to do. That's what I want to contribute. Yeah, like I want to do CDs. I want to put my name on a on a print CD and and show off something that I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know. I, it was a, it was pretty easy. I mean, at the same time, of course, he walks in the room and you, <laughs> when you first meet him and you are taken aback. I mean, the guy fills a space. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. Um, so it's hard not to be kind of blown away like, oh yeah, that's Prince. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, getting to work for him, I would say was always a, a dream job of mine. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that he probably had a lot of yes man types. And I'm sure that that probably your attitude towards it and everything contributed again, like you were saying in your previous episode, how the distance kind of did mm-hmm. to your ability to be there working with him for so long. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are a lot of celebrities who enjoy that, the strokes. I mean, we mm-hmm. all <laughs> enjoy it, not the band, but we all <laughs> I mean, some of us do, but uh, we all enjoy the strokes and I'm sure a lot of celebrities need and partake in that to a certain extent, but being able to kind of cut through the BS that people are piling on you. And I'm sure he had a a lot of that from people who he was working with and people who uh, were trying to work with him and especially Mm -hmm. being somebody who was writing kind of both sides of it of of having a secluded private life i mean that's part of the um awe of him as well as how private he was able to be as well as connected so intimately with the fans Mm -hmm. and kind of being able to have both the best of both worlds for him i guess Mm -hmm. and you know i've heard a lot of people talk about the struggles that some of those bigger like Elvis Mm -hmm. that Elvis had with his Memphis mafia and Mm -hmm. all of his cousins and all of his people. And they kind of talked about that, that led to his earlier demise Mm -hmm. that nobody could 
really say no to him. And right. um, I'm sure that that's something that Prince obviously had to very consciously deal with and that some of those people have to deal with and that it keeps them can keep them very secluded from people as well. Yeah. No, I think it's definitely true. You know, he was, he was off in Paisley park. It's like Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory out there. It's mm-hmm. like no one, no one's seen Willy Wonka in years. <laughs> He's mm-hmm. just in his factory doing his thing. And that's kind of how Prince was. He's, He's off in his little world. And yeah, that, you know, in the early, in the eighties and early nineties, he had managers and business partners and all these things that kind of guide him. And, you know, at one point he said, I don't trust any of them and fired them all. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it was kind of a situation where, yeah, there were a lot of people who wouldn't tell him no or wouldn't say no or wouldn't kind of stand up to him. Mm-hmm. And for better or worse, like he made those decisions himself. So yeah, it must have been challenging for him. Also, I think he had trouble trusting people for that reason too. You know, yeah. he didn't really know if someone was really speaking in his best interests or their own, you know. He mm-hmm. didn't really have a way to judge that sometimes. And so during the course of the 9 years, you say like when you first started it was kind of a skeleton crew by the ninth, eighth year, <laughs> like is it completely different than that there? It's still a skeleton crew. It's a different skeleton crew. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, people didn't people didn't last that long usually mm-hmm. with him. Um, you know, it's kind of that burnout thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I when I said I needed kind of a five hundred mile buffer zone, it's like, you know, it's not. Sometimes he would just be in one of those things where you know you kind of caught him on the wrong day, and mm-hmm. you were just there, and mm-hmm. it was not a good day to be there. And I got to avoid a lot of those bad days. So you know. It was still a really small group of people, but I saw a lot of people come and go during my time. And you were there for how many, how many tours would you have been on for then or, or major tours? I should say, um, I would say at least four or five. Okay. And how many of those were you? Cause you were in Vegas during the yes. 3121. Yes, I was. And how many of the other ones were you, um, kind of on site for or whatnot? Not a lot of the other ones. I did go to a lot of the hit and run tour because I was uh, managing a lot of the fan club tickets and mm-hmm. pre-sales. I did go a lot of the musicology tour because I was kind of doing other music club stuff with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did see a lot of those. And then our, our celebrations that we had at Paisley Park, I was at, there for all of those. Mm-hmm. I didn't make it to any of the London shows, but I was a part of um, you know all the stuff around that. When you did 21 Nights in London. Yeah. And were you out here when he did the 21 nights in LA? No, that was after that. Was, okay. That was after my, time. Okay. I think it was like 2010. I think. Yeah. We, yeah. We talked about going out to Vegas during 3121. Right. And didn't make it. And yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the, one of the things too, with him dying is, is people like yourself are kicking themselves because he was one of those people where you're like, oh, I'll just catch him next yeah, time. He's, yeah, exactly. He's going to be playing L.A. again. Yeah. So I'll just catch him next time. Yeah. And it's, I, I mean, during my youth, when I was in junior high and, you know, wallpapered up with Prince and whatever, and I was watching everything and taping every single thing on MTV, every performance thing that I could see, and doing little concerts for my cats <laughs> in my bedroom. I had like this makeshift Prince purple rain outfit that I would wow. wear. I had a guitar that was a tennis racket 
Wow. And I was like jumping off my, <laughs> timing my jumps off my dresser and like knew all of his moves. So it was kind of disappointing that I never got to see any of that happen. I was actually really like when the um, piano microphone was going mm-hmm. on, mm-hmm. I was like really all about that, even mm-hmm. though I knew it was very stripped down and wasn't going to be the normal thing. Like I really wanted to see that version yeah, yeah, and see all that. So yeah, I was, I really want to see that too. I was hoping it was going to come to Seattle. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that they will release, you know, I, I, I still hold out hope that a lot of the live stuff will be things that they will release. It's also cool, you know, seeing all of the stuff, on Twitter that is a lot of VHS horrible record, you know, (laughs) things that you're seeing, you know, I think something that I watched a couple nights ago that somebody posted was like him kind of looked like he was in a warehouse and it probably was, um, Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. some small club and doing party up, um, like 83, I think was what they were 82 or 83. Uh Uh-huh. And like seeing all this material that people are putting out there now Mm -hmm. and locating in their stack of tapes or whatever. And I think that's one of the really cool things that have started to branch out now more than I saw before. But I, I honestly like, I, I didn't see as much of a connection to some of the people a lot before his death, I guess Mm -hmm. it's a really cool community and can be a very cool community and can also be, I mean, the far extremes, you know, oh, it's sure. with, with, which is nowadays with everything, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that, that's just the nature of everything. Yeah. I mean, like I was saying about fans earlier, that community, you're going to find those extremes in every community, mm-hmm. whether it's Prince or Star Wars or, yes, or whatever. Yes. So how different was it when you then made that? you know, you only had five months in between working for Prince and working for Pearl Jam. How much different was that experience? It was very different. You know, Pearl Jam, they, it's a very different thing. It's, um, you've got a band dynamic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will say that they have a very strong organization in Seattle. It's very impressive. They have a warehouse down in Georgetown where they have their retail operation in-house, they have their manager's office there, their PR person's there, their charity's there. It's all under one roof, their fan club. And it all runs really smoothly. They tour every year. They have a very consistent income. They put out a record every once in a while. And it's just kind of like a well-oiled machine, just kind of chugging along. So for me to come in there, they they wanted someone to kind of kick their internet thing up to the next level. Mm-hmm. So that was why they hired me. They wanted uh, somebody who was familiar with strong fan communities who could kind of guide them on what they should do next. This is 2008. So, you know, I came in there with a lot of big ideas, a lot of like, Oh, we should try this. And this is something really innovative. And they, you know, it kind of met with sort of a lukewarm response like, Oh, well maybe, or well, we'll see, you know, trying to explain to them what Twitter was about. They were, didn't mm-hmm. really get it. And they're like, Oh, you're going to be tweeting out what we have for lunch. I'm like, no, no, not. I promise. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it was a little bit of an uphill battle and, yeah. um, they weren't so interested in 
being great innovators or doing something amazing. I mean, they kind of said they did, but, you know, I think when at the end of the day, they were kind of pretty okay with the way things were, which is fine. Mm-hmm. You know, that, like I said, they've got a great thing going. So God bless. But, um, there wasn't a whole lot for me to do. And so, you know, I, I stuck with them through the release of the backspacer record about two years. And then I was, they, they were kind of like, well, we're going to kind of put things on automatic pilot. And I was like, okay, I'm going to kind of move on. From mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of bands, that was one of my kind of frustrations with Dave Matthews band was they could have, I think they were okay with, they had their fan base. Mm-hmm. They were very established. They have everything. So it's like, why do we want to do more? Right. And, you know, I would be traveling with them on their caravan festivals, going to these other places for three day festivals and giving them all this stuff and they would never post anything. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why are you guys, you guys can do so much more to not only potentially bring in new people who are coming in maybe for other bands, but also build that stronger tie to your fans. And, Mm -hmm. and it was that kind of big machine that's already kind of chugging along. And it is, there are some that are going to push it a little bit more and, and maybe even not to become bigger, but to create a stronger tie and bond to what is already there. Mm -hmm. And there are those that are just kind of, we're already a cruise ship cruising along and we're going to stay the course and whatever. So, and you know, like, you know, it's that kind of thing of becoming a legacy artist, right? Uh, That's kind of where Prince was headed to where, your sort of hit making days are behind you mm-hmm. and you have enough hits and enough of a fan base where you can keep it going for a long time. But, mm-hmm. but no one's really looking to you for that. Like no one really cares if the Rolling Stones ever do another album. Right. But if they can go see them play satisfaction, Hey, they'll sign up for that. Right. And so you become this legacy artist. And then, so, you know, if you're cool with that and you know, it's making you money and you can go home to your family then great. Yeah. And that's when people start doing all their solo projects. And- yeah. Whatever as well. Well, yeah, there were a lot of Pearl Jam solo projects I was involved in during that time. Yeah, so that was around the time. So you stopped working with them what year? 2009, so it was about a year and a half. So that was before ukulele music? That was, he had, uh, Eddie Vedder done the Into the Wild. Okay, during Uh, that time or before that already? Just right before that. Okay. But he was doing a lot of solo shows Mm -hmm. where he was playing that music. And Mm -hmm. it's a great album. I love that album. Yeah, it's a fantastic album. And I think it's very um, interesting that they were just in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and you worked with them. Mm -hmm. And then Lenny Kravitz did that thing for Prince. Mm -hmm. So um, I think people should want to work with you. If they want to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Basically, you know, the story that we're I telling totally here. I totally agree. <laughs> there's, there's an obvious least common denominator. Well, yeah, the both bands I worked for are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. So you're two for two. I'm two for two. Yeah. Do you think that you will go towards that with another band at some point? I mean, is it something that you really want to do again with another band? I mean, obviously, you're with going on with Ebony right now mm-hmm. and not really looking for something new. Right. But is that something that you strive for, or is it just the fact that it is something that is creative and something that is innovative and different? And um, 
yeah, you know what? It's it's there there aren't a lot of musicians obviously like Prince. And mm-hmm. so to find an artist who really wants to bring all that stuff in-house and to really focus on it in a in a direct way, I think that's pretty rare. So, you know, most artists they either rely on their management company or a record label or Live Nation or Rock Nation or some of these other groups to kind of handle that for them. Mm-hmm. So I think it's pretty rare to find that kind of collaborative relationship with an artist. Yeah. So there are a couple out there. Like I'd love to work with Trent Reznor, mm-hmm. for instance, with Nine Inch Nails and his solo stuff and his, all that. I'd love to work with him. So if he's listening, give me a call. Um, if he's listening, you should call all of us. Trent. Yes. Call in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but that that's kind of rare. So there there are other the other possibilities working for like a management company, for instance. Mm-hmm. And they're going through an interesting phase right now. I, I had a meeting with a management company here in LA who manage a lot of big name artists and they're you know, their their focus is really on building partnerships with brands. So, you know, it's not really about records and not even so much about tours anymore, but mm-hmm. it's about building relationship with like, you know, Nike or car companies hmm. or, you know, developing those kind of commercial relationships. So a lot of what I would wind up be doing if I worked for them, for instance, would have been like presentations to like Sprite or something like that, you know, which is interesting, kind of a, a shift, sort of a different sort of focus that is going on right now. So it's not exactly what I was doing before. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily be the quite the creative thing that I was, I was looking for. But it's interesting that that's what the management companies are focusing on right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I can see some of the things that have already happen with that with some artists chance the rapper yeah exactly obviously is somebody who is doing things very differently Mm -hmm. and being very successful at it right as at two sold out shows at red rocks right now Uh which is something Mm -hmm. it will be interesting to see with that evolution that's happening with bands and musicians and their um, agencies right now, like what is going to happen and what is happening because everything is so crazy different for music now. Yeah. I mean, to say that, you know, artists are, uh, everything is online and, you know, with title mm-hmm. even and what has happened with that. And even a little bit with some of this print stuff with deliverance. Right. And what has happened with that is just, crazy and i can see that even taking place with non posthumous artists you know with with how much is out there digitally Mm -hmm. and with somebody potentially trying to do that to somebody else it's interesting ownership and branding and right oh yeah because that's the thing i mean we we really are you know we've been transitioning away from ownership of music to access to music. Mm-hmm. It's really about access now. It's not, not ownership. No, we don't actually own music anymore. Right. Uh, we just, we pay for access to it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's a whole shift of, it's a whole paradigm shift as far as the economy goes. Well, you know, Trent Reznor, <laughs> we're banging on your door. All right. Well, it's been fantastic talking with you. I could probably talk about Prince with you all the ding dong day, but, <laughs> I won't, you know, completely override you with that. So what do you, do you have anything going on with Ebony that we should be looking out for yet? Or is it just 
you're in the starting phases. Yeah, starting phases. I've only okay. been with them for about a month now. So okay. it's um, sort of just kind of hitting the ground running on some existing projects, and then kind of larger things will be coming up soon. Okay, so we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that. Mm-hmm. But as it stands, you can look for samjennings.com, and I'm sure you will be floating some of that stuff on there when it's tangible and Absolutely. able to be floated. Yep. Uh, and you can follow him on his Twitter. How, how active... Am I misleading people? Are you <laughs> are you fairly active on Twitter or not super active? But okay. you know, I, I do I do check in. Yeah, I'm a little I'm more active on like Instagram and Facebook. But okay, I do dip into Twitter. Yeah, so you can follow him in those places, and you can find his Instagram and his Facebook through his website. Go back and listen to Sam's other episode if you haven't already listened to it because there's some good nuggets in there as well and again thanks for coming all the way down braving <laughs> the los angeles traffic yeah thank you for having me. all right and there you have it that is the episode with myself and Sam Jennings. So again, you can find Sam at samjennings.com. You can find him on Twitter by his name, Sam Jennings, which Daddy Unscripted is the same way. Very original. Daddy Unscripted on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, Our website is daddyunscripted.com where you can find the original blog and find some of these things, these writings and some of the photos that go along with this. On the Daddy Unscripted site, there is a blog post that talks a little bit more about how this episode came to be and has some photos as well provided by Sam of his time with Prince and his time with Pearl Jam. So you should check that out there. Again, I will say, like I said at the end of the first episode, thank you so much to Sam for coming down from L.A., for being into the idea of recording with me for this podcast pretty much from the get-go, being so nice and such a genuine great guy. Like, I kind of knew that as we first met each other tonight as we were recording, but also during the few hours that we spent together. Just a genuine, fantastic guy, and I couldn't be happier to have been able to spend the time with you. So thank you, really, from a very deep place, you might say, the heart. Also, big thanks goes to Umphreys McGee, as always, for allowing me to have that partnership with them for their music to be on the podcast. You can check them out on Umphreys.com. You can send me an email at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. Again, Twitter has been amazing for finding people, and you guys have been great about sending me guest ideas as well. So keep that up, because this show is driven by you. It is created for you guys to listen to and enjoy and maybe learn a few things from. So keep sending those ideas. I love it. So the next episode should be out in a couple of weeks. I will make sure to let you guys know on Twitter and Facebook when that is coming out. But thanks again for listening. Thank you.